Chapter Sixteen of Oscar Wilde and Myself by Lord Alfred Douglas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wilde's poetry. Wilde once said to me when we were discussing poetry that there were two ways of disliking poetry, one being to dislike it, and the other to like Pope. This remark was brought forth really by Aubrey Beardsley, who was present and who said that for him, at any rate, there was only one English poet, namely Pope. It is highly characteristic of Wilde, who, although he insisted on his own eminence as a poet, and a critic of poetry, never committed himself to what might be considered a serious theory on the subject. Piecing together the views he expressed from time to time in a casual and general way, I am convinced, indeed, that he had no theory which was in the least stable or cogent, and which was not liable to be altered by the moment's whim or mood. It is certain that, while he hankered after poetic distinction, and in his early manhood strove after it, his aim was not so much to produce great poetry as to turn out stuff which would provoke the critics to write about him, and the witlings to talk about him. He published a volume of poems when he was twenty-six years of age, but after that he produced next to nothing poetical till he wrote The Ballad of Reading Jail. The Sphinx, it is true, was published in 1894, but it had been written many years before. In his preface to Wilde's selected poems, Mr. Ross tells us that Wilde's early work was never, until recently, well received by the critics he adds however that they have survived the test of nine editions with the nine in capital letters for myself i do not admit that the poems have been well received by criticism even recently for the very simple reason that there is very little in them to receive of course it is unfair to apply the test of reception to any poetry that is worth talking about, just as it is unfair to rely on the test of additions. To take an instance in point, there is Miss Ella Wheeler Wilcox, who has been received with all manner of plaudits by all manner of reviewers, and whose works have stood the test of probably ninety editions. But who in his senses is going to tell us that this estimable lady is a great poetess, and to be mentioned in the same breath as, say, Mrs. Browning, or Mrs. Maynell, the latter of whom, at any rate, has not achieved even so many additions as Wilde. It is plain that the only real test of poetry is its quality, and neither its reception nor its saleability can affect that quality. If we apply such a test to Wilde's early poetical work, which represents the bulk of what he accomplished, we shall not find that he shines with anything like the effulgence that his adherents have imagined for him. Wilde himself knew that he was not a great poet. His cry is, continually, I am an artist, the supreme artist, in fact, and never, I am a poet, or I am the supreme poet. He knew perfectly well that that cock wouldn't fight. 
he was not even anxious to be known as a poet in the way that some of his contemporaries were anxious to be known he told me that to be dubbed poet was to raise up visions of untidy hair dirty linen and no dinner to speak of and such a view of himself he abhorred never be a poet my dear bosie be a gentleman a connoisseur an artist what you will but not a poet let us leave being a poet to dowson and arthur simmons and if you like dick le gallienne all wilde's biographers have striven manfully and one might say pitifully to make a great poet out of oscar wilde and they have failed even mr ransom the most zealous of the bunch cannot bring himself to any more flattering conclusion than that wilde was a sort of inspired plagiarist or imitator who in mr ransom's view improved upon what he appropriated nobody who has read any poetry other than wilde's can fail to perceive that leaving out the ballad of reading jail and up to a point the sphinx wilde's poetical work consists of clever and occasionally perhaps brilliant imitations wherever one turns in the three hundred pages of his published poems one finds echoes and little else but echoes his sonnets are for the most part miltonic in their effects the metre and method of in memoriam are used in the greater number of his lyrics and he used the metre which tennyson sealed to himself for all time even in the sphinx which is his great set work while in such pieces as carmides panthea humanitad and the burden of itis he borrows the grave pipe of matthew arnold and what he himself called the silver-keyed flute of keats haphazard i take up the ross edited volume poems by oscar wilde and i open on page two hundred and twenty two la mer a white mist drifts across the shrouds a wild moon in this wintry sky gleams like an angry lion's eye out of a mane of tawny clouds the muffled steersman at the wheel is but a shadow in the gloom and in the throbbing engine room leap the long rods of polished steel the shattered storm has left its trace upon this huge and heaving dome for the thin threads of yellow foam float on the waves like ravelled lace the bird is wild the plumage and call are tennyson's to a fault then again on page one hundred and thirty six to outer senses there is peace a dreamy peace on either hand deep silence in the shadowy land deep silence where the shadows cease save for a cry that echoes shrill from some lone bird disconsolate a corncrake calling to its mate the answer from the misty hill and suddenly the moon withdraws her sickle from the lightning skies and to her sombre cavern flies 
wrapped in a veil of yellow gauze more tennyson with the in memoriam verse lines arbitrarily and wrongfully disposed for the deception of the innocent i might go on quoting from wilde in the metre ad nauseam and never strike so much as four lines which can be pronounced to be pure wild with the sphinx as a whole i shall deal later but i may point out here that while wilde arranges the stanzas as though they consisted of two lines they really consist of tennyson's four and for correctness sake should have been printed thus in a dim corner of my room far longer than my fancy thinks a beautiful and silent sphinx has watched me through the shifting gloom inviolate and immobile she does not rise she does not stir for silver moons are naught to her and naught to her the suns that reel tennyson's sons as well as tennyson's stanza i am not suggesting that all this is otherwise than neat and deft and skilful and pleasing but a poet of parts leaving out the true poet so beloved of mr ross should surely have a note or tone or cadence of his own and not warble so distressingly like the true poet in the next street as the wild faction appear to be acquainted with no poetry but poor dear oscars i will take a few passages from in memoriam which while they will be familiar to the more intelligent reader will doubtless come in the way of an eye-opener to people like mr ross let us repeat to begin with the second verse of la mer the muffled steersman at the wheel is but a shadow in the gloom and in the throbbing engine-room leaps the long rods of polished steel this is as we have seen wild against it let us put tennyson's i hear the noise about the keel i hear the bell struck in the night i see the cabin window bright i see the sailor at the wheel if ever there was an impudent and unblushing crib surely we have it here i wonder what the ransoms charades harrises and inglebys of this little world would say if they caught anybody else but wild at pretty little tricks of this kind in wild such childish conveyance must be excused and even held up to admiration in another it would be sheer theft then again take the second set of stanzas i have quoted from wilde about peace and silence and compare them with the following from in memoriam calm is the morn without a sound calm as to suit a calmer grief and only through the faded leaf the chestnut pattering to the ground calm and deep peace on this high wold and on these dews that drench the firs and all the silvery gossamers that twinkle into green and gold calm and still light on yon great plain that sweeps with all its autumn bowers and crowded farms and lessening towers to mingle with the bounding main calm and deep peace in this wide air these leaves that redden to the fall 
and in my heart if calm at all if any calm a calm despair wilde's verses are plainly a paraphrase and a bad one to boot it will be urged that he wrote these in his youth and that all poets more or less echo one another when they're young but when one comes to consider that out of the forty or so lyrical pieces which wilde wrote no fewer than eighteen are in the metre of in memoriam and not one of them is free from images phrases or cadences which can easily be paralleled out of tennyson while the whole of the sphinx is open to criticism on the same grounds one cannot doubt that oscar wilde is a poet who has rather overdone the youthful imitation business and one can scarcely be expected to break the alabaster box of critical adulation at his feet i have not space to enter into great detail with regard to those lyrics of wilde which are not flatly tennysonian there are about twenty of them and they include a cheap imitation of la belle dame saint merci a flagrant copy of hood's lines beginning take her up tenderly and sundry pieces which are childishly reminiscent of mrs browning william morris and even jean ingelow of his own initiative mr ross heads up this collection of poetical brummagem with such taking titles as eleutheria wind flowers flowers of gold the fourth movement and flowers of love but the fact that they are wood pulp or seraceous replicas of other people's nosegays is of no account to the faithful and the blind as regards the sonnets which may perhaps be said to constitute that part of wilde's poetical work which is best worth consideration i have only to say that while it would be tedious to compare them side by side with the sonnets of milton and other writers such a comparison cannot fail to convince any reasonable being that in this department again wilde was an over sedulous ape so over sedulous in fact that he is careful to emphasise and exaggerate the very faults and defects of his masters on the point of technique the importance of which cannot be too gravely insisted upon where the sonnet form is concerned he is continuously and hopelessly at fault his rhyme sounds are for the most part of the cheapest and the most hackneyed of the twenty-eight sonnets which he produced seven have rhymes to play say day and so forth rhymes to see be and me are common and an even greater number and on no fewer than twenty-one distinct occasions are we proffered such rhymes as liberty anarchy memory democracy already victory luxury and the like or an average of three times in every four sonnets and this if you please is the work of the supreme artist it follows without saying that while wilde believed himself to be writing in the italian sonnet form he persistently finds himself unable to adhere to the difficult rules of that form he has octaves with four rhymes in them instead of two and he will wind up a sextet with a couplet like the veriest tyro of them all the contents of the sonnets represent the best of wilde's thought being for the most part free from fleshliness 
cynicism and perversity yet when one has said this for it one has said all there is nowhere anything very great or very noble or very beautiful and one never catches even a suggestion of the large accent which makes a poet sententiousness grandioseness and a laboured classicism set forward with the help of an artificial rhetoric which at times is almost comic are the upshot of wild sonnets taken generally and in the lump there now remains the set pieces such as a garden of eros a la matthew arnold the new helen a la keats the burden of itis a la matthew arnold again panthea a blend of matthew arnold and keats and humanitad more arnold also the sphinx and the ballad of reading jail no lover of poetry in a high sense is likely to waste much time in the perusal of the five pieces first mentioned it is not claimed for them by anybody that they are other than cold and super-painted failures produced in the spirit of now let me show you what i the scholar and a connoisseur can do rather than by any spiritual or poetical impulsion only the meagrest portions of them can be admired even by the elect and these portions are not edifying as for the sphinx even if we concede that the uneasy effect of its metre be dismissed from the question we have left what is on the face of it a work of not always too successful virtuosity on a theme which is frankly bestial there is an undoubted pomp and swing about some of the stanzas there are pictures well visualised and put on the canvas with a fine eye for colour and the element of curiousness or weirdness is well sustained but right through the piece one is made to feel that it is not the poet but the mechanician who has come before us and continually he creaks and whirs as it were for want of oil and control wilde doubtless set out to build a jewelled palace for his dubious and if you come to look at it closely loathsome fancy he has succeeded only in establishing a sort of wardour street receptacle for old tarnished and too vividly coloured lots his efforts to do things in the most dazzling and wizardly manner are at times ludicrous and his endeavours to get up unthinkable passions provoke one to laughter rather than awe in a despairing determination to tie to the end of the poem something on which a reasonable being might ponder he becomes utterly inconsequential false sphinx false sphinx by reedy sticks old charon leaning on his oar waits for my coin go thou before and leave me to my crucifix whose pallid burden sick with pain watches the world with wearied eyes and weeps for every soul that dies and weeps for every soul in vain the dragging in of this bit of specious religiosity as a bon bouche after an orgy of flamboyant passion slaking is doubtless very cunning and clever but it has nothing to do with either great art on the one hand or common sense on the other 
the sphinx is a poem which may well have stirred certain resorts in the neighbourhood of piccadilly circus to their foundations it is a poem for the perverse and the curious but its value as art or poetry is next door to negligible i have already said that in my view the ballad of reading gaol is the only poem of wilde's which is likely to endure it is as different from his previous work as chalk is different from cheese and to read it after perusal of the sphinx or the sonnets it might almost be the work of another hand in point of fact it was indeed written by a wilde who had very little in common whether intellectually or artistically with the wilde of the bulk of the poems up to the time of his imprisonment oscar wilde poet had encouraged or pretended to encourage certain very grave fallacies with regard to poetry he asserted largely i think because he knew himself to be incapable of sincerity that poetry was in its essence a matter of pretence and artifice he held that style was everything and feeling nothing that poetry should be removed as well from material actuality as from the actuality of the spirit and that no great poet had ever in his greatest moments been other than insincere he professed other odd views and used roundly to assert that he would rather have written swinburne's poems and ballads than anything else in literature and that shakespeare was not after all a very great poet i remember that when some idiot talked of starting an anti-shakespeare society on the ground that shakespeare never wrote a line of poetry in his life wilde was vastly tickled by the idea and said that shakespeare had been much overrated he would have it that webster's duchess of malfi was a much better play and much better poetry than any of shakespeare's and as he admired little that he did not sooner or later try to imitate it is possible that we owe his duchess of padua to this view in any case up to the time of his going to prison there can be no question that wilde was peculiar and in a great measure heretical in his notions about what poetry should be his opinions may or may not have altered while he was in prison i never heard him renounce them but after he came out he did arrive at a perception of the fact that a poet who wishes to be heard must make his appeal to the human heart as well as to the intellect and that perversity is never by any chance poetry and so he set about the ballad of reading gaol even here however he could not walk alone he must have models and his actual model was the dream of eugene aram with the ancient mariner thrown in on technical grounds the result of course far outdistances eugene aram just as in certain ultimate qualities it falls far short of the ancient mariner it is sufficient for us that in the ballad of reading gaol we have a sustained poem of sublimated actuality and of a breadth and sweep and poignancy such as had never before been attained in this line the emotional appeal is on the whole quite legitimate and if we accept a very few passages in which the old adam wilde crops out 
the established tradition as to what is fitting and comely in a poem of this nature is not outraged or transgressed because of this and the general skill and deftness of its workmanship the poem will last and though i cannot agree with those critics who desire to place wilde among the immortals i am certainly of opinion that it is on the ballad of reading jail and on the ballad of reading jail alone that his reputation among posterity will stand the placing of poets and poetry in their proper relation to the mass of literature is no fool's job and i am aware that the opinion of one age is frequently stultified by the opinion of the next but this is not true of great work i think it can be established that all great work has been admired and treasured from the beginning from time to time too the vast quantities of mediocre and insignificant work is also admired but in the nature of things there is no vitality about it and despite the peon of fools it perishes much that wilde has strung into verse will so perish the ballad may persist and save him from the oblivion which he seems to me assiduously to have courted End of chapter 16